Sometimes you make decisions that are not based purely on data and on science uh, and for other reasons. And it's a sword that cuts both ways. Sometimes it ends up crushing a glimmer of hope for a patient group. Sometimes it results in something that maybe is barely incrementally better and hard to prove on paper with a p-value, but it's making a difference for a small group of patients and is an important piece of their treatment and, and frankly, giving them hope. This is Real Pharma, your podcast for real conversations with pharma pathfinders. In every episode, you will hear from an industry insider who has a story to share that goes beyond the headlines. No spin, no sacred cows, no hidden agendas, just stories and the people behind them. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Nari O oh and Ian Wint. Hello, and welcome to The Real Pharma Podcast, where we uncover the real stories behind biopharma innovation and patient care. I'm Ian Wendt, and joining me as always is Dr. Nari O. Oh. Hello. Hello, Nari. In today's episode, we're excited to welcome a distinguished guest, Koi Stout. Koi is not just a leader in patient access, patient advocacy, and policy, but also an educator in the field of social work. With a career spanning almost three decades, Koi has been a pivotal figure in shaping healthcare policies and advocating for patient rights. Koi's extensive experience includes his impactful roles as the Senior Vice President and Head of Patient Advocacy and Policy at Bree Biosciences, a board seat at the National Pharmaceutical Council, and Program Manager for the AIDS Drug Assistance Program for the Maryland Department of Health. He's currently working as an adjunct instructor at the University of Alabama School of Social Work and a doctoral candidate in social work at Simmons University. Beyond his professional achievements, Coy is actively involved in supporting LGBTQIA members in the biopharma industry through his mentoring role at OutBio and his membership in organizations like the National Organization of Perinatal Social Workers and the Society for Social Work Leadership in Healthcare. So let's dive into this exciting conversation with Coy Stout and learn more about the intersection of patient advocacy, policy, and social work in today's pharma landscape. Welcome to Real Pharma, Koi. Welcome, Koi. Hey, it's great to uh, be here with both of you, Nari and Ian. Thanks for making time for us. You have such a vast experience and really diverse background. So I wanted to just jump right in with a question around patient advocacy is probably you know, a broad field that we can talk about from different angles, but is there a personal story or something that really was the motivator for you to get involved in this field? Yeah, a great question and something I've had time to reflect on a lot. That intro actually stimulates a lot of the thinking and to think 30 years have gone by in my professional career and I, I still feel like I have a couple of acts left in me. I think it does all stem from my early experiences with patient advocacy. When I was a student back in the early 1990s at the University of Alabama, working on my master's of social work degree, I became involved in HIV advocacy with a local community organization and helped to organize the very first on-campus HIV awareness event at the university and one of the first events to take place in the state of Alabama uh, during those early to mid days of the AIDS crisis. And at that time, we were really centered on the stigma associated with even talking about the disease and the diagnosis and the barriers that put in place for people to be able to be tested if they were HIV positive to be able to gain access to care, but even more importantly, just to be part of society and not to be treated as other or as a pariah. And I got to meet so many people, all of whom are long gone now, but who really shaped my passion for making the patient the center of my work, whatever that was going to be. I wasn't sure at that time, but that early taste of patient advocacy stuck with me from my time as a frontline social worker working in HIV case management and healthcare, home healthcare and hospice to program administration with the state. Maryland, running the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, and then carrying that into my pharma career for the past 20 years. In those early days, was there a thought in your mind about how to work with pharma? Because that really was a lot of the building blocks, let's say, of what today exists in terms of patient advocacy. You know, some of those early days around ACT UP and a lot of the advocacy work associated with, with HIV at that time. I'm not sure those relationships really existed between groups 
that you're mentioning in pharma. Was that something that, that was kind of on the radar? Like, gee, we need to build better relationships with pharma or did it feel more adversarial at that time? I think my point of view and my perspective back in those early days in Alabama was first getting to know some representatives from pharma who were reaching out to the community to bring resources and education and partner. And frankly, I didn't know any other way. I thought, wow, this is great. You know, we'll take help from anyone who's willing to provide it. And the sincerity that they brought really resonated with the community that it didn't feel like anything, you know, related to uh, to marketing or sales or anything that we would traditionally have thought of back then when someone said the words farmer up. We saw those early folks who became community liaisons or policy and advocacy leaders really as partners who could help bring resources, bring funding, and amplify the patient voice. And I think back to coming from Alabama to Washington, D.C., then around 94 or so, beginning to meet people from some of the early pioneers in HIV research and medicine on the pharma side. Companies that now have different names, but back then were called like Burroughs Welcome or Squib. Gosh, one person who comes to mind is the incredible Dorothy Kevill, who organized the very, very first iteration of what became the ADAP Working Group, along with Bill Arnold here in DC. And the two of them, I think, created a lasting legacy within the HIV community of patient advocacy groups and pharma being able to work together to advance uh, funding and policies that would help people living with HIV and ultimately help prevent HIV. Just jumping forward, I guess, a little bit to your recent role at Bree Biosciences, you know, of course, things have changed a lot, hopefully mostly in a positive direction in terms of how patient advocacy works and how they interact with pharma. But just relate to us for a little bit about your work there and maybe what stood out to you. There might be folks listening who understand kind of in the abstract patient advocacy and, and, and how pharma could work with them. But, you know, what do best practices look like in your opinion? Yeah, this was a really uh, interesting journey into a small biotech, a very early stage clinical research stage company, but working in areas of high public health burden and high social stigma. So HIV, hepatitis B, other infectious diseases, postpartum depression and mental health. And the company has a, a core value built around patient centricity. And I saw the opportunity as a patient advocate to help the company connect in many ways with the patient communities very early stage in phase one and phase two uh, clinical drug development, learning from patients themselves about the lived journey of having one of these healthcare conditions and what patients really wanted in terms of treatment, cure, what were their goals in life, how would this fit in? to their lived experience and um, what were some of the barriers we needed to think about from participation in clinical trials to eventually, hopefully one day, having a, a product come to market. I think a lot of drug development is very prescriber-centric. You're thinking about who is going to be making a treatment decision with or on behalf of a patient and how will they select the therapy. But I think this was a unique opportunity to ask early on, what do patients really want? And given choices, how would they select a therapy? How would they tell a company to develop the drug from the earliest stage clinical trials? What are some of the things keeping the community from participating in clinical trials, especially when you're dealing with areas uh, with lots of stigma? It takes a lot simply to say, we heard frequently from new parents, uh, if you're a new parent experiencing postpartum depression, it's very hard to talk to a healthcare provider about not bonding with your baby when it's supposed to be the very best time of your life. It's even harder to say, can you refer me to a clinical trial where there will be days and days and hours and hours of interviews and forms to fill out and clinics to visit and lots of scrutiny about everything going on in my life? So hearing from patients early stage, I think, is really essential. There's not really any company I can think of that works in biotech or pharma that doesn't proclaim that they're patient-centric. We all say we're patient-centric. And I think, luckily, the industry and members of industry have now realized that patients are actually important, not just as recipients, as you say, of decisions or drugs or policies, but that they should play an active role. But there are probably companies that do better than others. Are there any 
examples that you can share where you feel like that's really innovative or that really makes a difference. And you just also outlined it covers all aspects of a patient's life, not just in terms of their patient journey, but also outside of their diagnosis. They're not just patients with a disease. They have lives, they have families, they live in communities. And all of that probably at some point touches the topic of patient advocacy. But what do you think is really the, the gold standard now in 2024? We, we've talked about patient advocacy for decades, but it's evolved. What does good look like now? There's actually a strong connection between the work that companies are now starting to do in patient centricity, patient advocacy, and actually companies' DEI initiatives, thinking about their own employees. And let me go a little bit deeper with that. If you're looking at a therapeutic area only as a disease and biomarkers and things that can be measured, but you're not considering the lived experience and the impact that disease has differently based on patients' intersecting identities, you know, a Black lesbian woman with ovarian cancer has a very different journey as a patient in engaging with the healthcare system than a white heterosexual woman. And if you're not thinking about it that way, then you may be designing programs, so-called patient solutions, things to help call centers. You may be targeting your advocacy in, in the wrong way for funding without thinking about that journey. And I honestly don't think that without the work in DEI, where we started thinking about our own employees' identities and their journeys within our system and the way they connect back to these communities, these patient communities, that we would have made the leap the way we have. But I see these two things working so closely together that actually in my previous role at BreBio, my main partner around patient centricity was the chief people officer. And thinking about ways that we could think about approaching different patient communities with a sense of humility, we're on a journey for scientific answers. But in order to get there, we need patients to be co-creators, co-researchers, and guides along the way. And I think that carries all the way through to commercialization when you're designing patient support programs and uh, co-pay assistance and all of the things that we like to do as patient advocates within the industry. Are we designing the things that are really meaningful to different aspects of the community? So, Koi, it sounds like there are two angles to this. One is truly understanding who our patients are and really seeing them with their full holistic lived experience, as you said, but then also making sure that the people who work in these companies also share some of that so that it's not such a gap between the people who are on one side versus the people who are on the other side. So, you know, really bridge that gap. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And some of the examples that I've seen all throughout our industry are getting employees engaged in advocacy at all levels of the company. By that, I mean, Don't ignore the back office. The person who processes invoices for clinical trials, for office supplies, the person who runs your purchase orders through for your market research, they need to be as connected to patient communities as the person who's designing a marketing plan or a phase 2A proof of concept clinical trial because the work that they do is just as essential to bringing new therapies to patients as the work that your leading scientists do. It takes everyone's effort in the company. And I think you get a very, very different connection from employees when you create opportunities for them to be able to meet patients from the affected community, to engage in events like walks or fundraisers or other types of awareness events in their community. We're working so decentralized now, remote employees. But a lot of the patient advocacy groups out there learn to adapt to that. And then they've brought us things like virtual walks or virtual policy advocacy days where people can be trained and get involved. And I think making the space and making the time for that for all of your employees across the company means that people engage with a different level of sincerity in the work. And I do think that that can help with productivity, with employee engagement, and with just how the company is perceived. Uh, back to what Ian said earlier, you know, sometimes pharma companies are looked at a little bit with a sideways glance when approaching the community. But if they start seeing employees at all levels of all backgrounds 
engaged in the community, supporting events, I think it, it starts to build the trust that really can take advocacy to the next level. And building on the idea of engagement, I guess, a little bit, I wonder what your opinion is on the role of technology has played in certainly way patient advocacy and, and those organizations operate. And when I say technology, of course, there's maybe the more obvious things like Twitter and Facebook, the big social media platforms, which obviously play a role, but, but also there's things like EHRs or EMRs or electronic medical records, which give access to data information that allows us to learn things that we might not otherwise in a pure clinical trial setting. You think about wearables, you think about AI. I mean, there's all these different components, aspects of technology that perhaps can improve engagement. And I wonder how important that is if companies are leveraging that appropriately. I know it's a little bit of a moving target, but I wonder what your experience is there. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I think just a, a quick hit on social media Certainly having your advocacy folks and your public policy and communications folks aligning on how to amplify patient advocate groups, social media is very, very important because pharma companies often have a whole different audience of empowered advocates they can tap into and taking nonprofit patient advocacy organizations post on Facebook or LinkedIn or X and sending it out to your network can be worth thousand times of new followers for them who might become new supporters, new passionate advocates in an an area, and uh, maybe looking for a way just to get involved with patients in a particular therapeutic area. So I think that's very important to think about how we amplify our advocacy organization partners out there. In terms of other technology, there's something that I've increasingly started calling the EHR or EMR or patient portal doom loop. And this is the the portal that patients get into trying to access care. And I think about recently, I've had some experience helping my own parents navigate patient portals and EHR from the selection of font size to things that might be intuitive to someone who uses technology every day to even the way things are worded, asking very personal information about a disease from a patient over a computer resonates differently with different patient groups. And I think that, again, some patients in a therapeutic area might navigate that just fine and prefer dealing with an app. But others are going to need a knowledgeable, empathetic person to talk to. I think about the Super Bowl commercial that we saw last night where the actress was asked, was she a robot? It's just like, well, how will I know if I'm a robot? I mean, this is what patients go through when they're dealing with AI. And I think this is something we have to navigate really carefully, our use of of AI uh, in patient portals and technology and engaging, because if they are developing a relationship with a robot (laughs) and not with a company, it can really undermine future work that you're trying to do. So I think it brings back, uh, you know, old things, focus groups, having trial runs with patients, test groups, giving a portal to a patient group and asking them to do their best to break it for you. You know, these are all important steps that I think are part of the advocacy role. I think as always, technology ends up being a double-edged sword, right? You know, there's, there's some pluses and things that we like about it. And there's some things maybe we don't like and separating those two can often be challenging. So Koi, you mentioned HIV earlier, and that's an area that all three of us have worked in. And arguably, the beginning of the AIDS epidemic was a turning point in patient advocacy. So I think before then, patient advocacy really often meant advocating for yourself. So having a say in one's therapy or in how one was treated by their physician. And with HIV, it was really more about having access to drugs and having access to drugs faster because people were dying and didn't have time to wait for years-long trials. And really out of that desperation and the frustration and anger, I think came a lot of change. So the FDA established the accelerated approval pathway in 1992 as a direct result of the AIDS epidemic, which provides access to drugs for serious and life-threatening conditions faster than with normal approval. And you can use surrogate endpoints versus showing clinical benefit for mortality or morbidity, which takes a lot more time and a lot more patients. Do you recall any other 
examples of where patient advocacy really led to changes in healthcare policy or legislation that that we still have today. Oh, wow. Well, the one that you mentioned, I think HIV helped other communities uh, come forward and ask for pathways that we have now around breakthrough designation, even some of the innovative things like expedited review voucher program to incentivize uh, development in areas where patient advocates are deeply concerned, but where there's not a lot of financial incentive to spend a billion or more dollars in developing a new drug because the commercial markets don't really exist. And this is true in a lot of our public health areas. I'm thinking of things like, for example, antimicrobial XDR, MDR research. This is an area where it's very, very difficult for for companies to recoup the investment. And it's also very difficult for governments just to decide who best to fund. So we're seeing patient advocacy groups who are concerned about this issue because they had a loved one die or become severely disabled by a drug-resistant infection, advocating for new regulatory pathways and different kinds of incentives for companies to be in the market there. I also think there are areas where patient advocates are so far out in front of the pharma research. And I saw that in maternal mental health, in the, the perinatal depression and postpartum depression space, where until the past four years or so, there wasn't even an approved drug specifically indicated for postpartum depression. And advocacy groups, though, had existed for quite some time and had just begun marking significant success and getting funding for things like the National Maternal Mental Health Hotline, a dedicated hotline for people experiencing perinatal depression and anxiety, funded by the federal government and then now available across the country an incredible piece of advocacy, and then turning their plans and their focus to saying, what can we do from other perspectives to stimulate innovation, to address some of the regulatory pathways that are in place for very well-meaning purposes to protect pregnant women and newborn babies from exposure to untested experimental drug regimens, but have had a tremendously dampening effect on innovation in women's health and maternal health. So what are some different ways to do that? And and you saw just before the pandemic hit, for example, federal policy creating the task force that would address the ways that regulators look at pregnant and breastfeeding women in clinical research and post-drug approval. I think these are very exciting examples of the community being out ahead of pharma and then the companies coming into the space, again, kind of approaching with a sense of partnership and humility to say, you know, you're the experts, help guide us and let's see what we can add to the conversation to bring more awareness to this issue. It's interesting how we can follow many of those routes back and even talking to some of those advocates today, they'll say, oh yeah, you know, our advocacy training manual we developed based on a training manual and, and playbook that others had developed years ago in HIV when they were doing lobby days and other types of things that had been in the lexicon of HIV activists for a long time. It's good to hear. I didn't actually realize there might have been a kind of a patient advocacy component to the development of priority review vouchers. And just, just to elaborate on what that is briefly, for example, if, if a company gets uh, approval for, let's say, a tropical disease indication, they would be eligible potentially for a priority review voucher, which can reduce the amount of review time, which can be quite valuable uh, for a company, it reduces it down from, I think, 10 months to, I believe, six months. And, and those are valuable to the point that the companies buy and sell these things. There's a little market for these vouchers and they go for, I think, up to $100 million I've, I've seen them sell for. So it's an interesting dynamic. I think it is an example maybe where the feds have been innovative in, in solving problems. And so I certainly give them credit for that. Is there anything, though, that in your opinion, at the federal level or, or local level, you think the government is not doing well where patient advocacy is going to play a role in hopefully improving whatever policy may exist today? There's probably a lot of examples of those, but I wonder if there's anything that stands out to you where advocates are really at the forefront and making some progress and making needed changes. Yeah, I think... One of the biggest challenges we have in front of us right now, uh, just with polarized politics in America and drug pricing being at the center of some of the progressive versus conservative divide over drug price controls versus innovation and the impact there, 
I think what I'm seeing that is concerning to me as someone who's been doing this for a long time is that advocacy groups and folks who feel strongly on one side of that issue or another are themselves becoming polarized and becoming very aligned with each other. And there's not as much of a forum or a sense of coming together and negotiating solutions. And you see big kind of grass tops advocacy groups out there that are well-funded by different interests, uh, drowning out the grassroots a little bit on these issues. And I think it's a challenging situation. I'm not quite sure what the solution is. We had the solution for it. We could probably solve all of our divided politics problems that are going on in the country and find some common ground on on other issues. But just like some of these uh, other thorny, divisively political issues, I see um, that as being one of the biggest challenges where government, specifically elected officials, may be failing us by being so deeply divided from a partisanship perspective that they are uh, dividing the community against each other and sometimes groups that could be working together to advance real patient-centered solutions and bring people to the middle. I would love to see if some of the other stakeholders in the space could find that middle ground. And I am starting to see a little bit more of that patient voice brought in that says, hey, don't forget about me. I'm the one who actually needs to take this medicine to survive and to live a, a better, healthier life. I think we all share that hope, right? That we can find that common ground and as difficult as it seems to be and elusive as it seems to be at times. But I love the idea that patient advocacy can be a bridge towards that future. Uh, I hope that's true. And I think there's some great examples already out there of that. I want to take a slightly different angle on this topic of controversy or misalignment or division. So patient advocacy has been in the news in recent years, I want to talk about two examples that were very high profile. One is ALS, and one the other one is Alzheimer's disease. So ALS was a disease that not many people were probably aware of, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, as it's also called in the US. And then something happened in the summer of 2014, which probably everybody's aware of, which is the ice bucket challenge. So that viral trend raised about $220 million worldwide, dramatically increased the public awareness of ALS, and also dramatically increased donations to patient advocacy groups and indirectly clinical research. The FDA approved in September of 2022, Relivrio, or AMX0035, from a company called Amelix, based on a single phase two trial Centaur with 137 patients. And Centaur was actually partially funded by the Ice Bucket Challenge via a $2.2 million fund from the ALS Association. Before the approval, the ALS Association launched an advocacy campaign with about 50,000 signatures on a petition to the FDA, 13,000 emails. They also partnered with other advocacy groups in December of 2021 with members of Congress, to get the Accelerating Access to Critical Therapies, or ACT for ALS Act, approved to provide better funding and access to therapies for this really devastating disease. There actually were two outcomes for uh, Relivrio. The first one was negative. So the outcome, the advisory committee, voted six to four against it citing a lack of substantial evidence for effectiveness. That was in March 2022. But then six months later, this decision was reversed with a 7-2 to two positive opinion. And the two people who voted against it said, we still don't think there's substantial evidence. We want to wait for the result of a phase three trial. So what happened between those two outcome meetings? One of the panel members later said that they were struck by the patient's participation in the public session as well as the thousands of comments that they had received. Another panel member said the evidence is still not very convincing. So you have these two opposite opinions of what the basis for approval should be. Importantly, Amelix also said before the second adcom, we'll do this phase three trial, which we uh, expect the results of in this year, actually. And if it fails, then we can just withdraw the drug. And that was apparently one of the reasons why FDA 
decided to approve the drug. However, it's not approved in Europe because EMA said we have concerns with the methodology of how the data was analyzed and also the risk-benefit analysis. And they actually rejected it twice uh, with a negative opinion by CHMP in June and October of last year. And in the US, Cigna had initially approved it or covered it, but then they reversed that decision in 2023. So that's ALS. The other example, Adrihelm, was probably even more high profile and really can only be described as this ongoing saga with many twists and turns. So in March 2019, the phase three program failed a futility analysis and Biogen was ready to fold that program. But then eight months later, they actually decided to reverse that decision and file for approval because they said the data analysis was incorrect. There was an advisory committee in November 2020, which voted against the approval of Eduhelm or Educanumab. Then in January 2021, two months later, patient advocacy groups organized a listening session where patients and caregivers gave testimony about the impact of Alzheimer's disease on them, their families, and their lives. And later, the Office of New Drug Director Peter Stein confirmed that these patient testimonials and the opinions did play a role in what eventually became an approval in June 2021. So Edgeham was approved under accelerated approval, which was a very surprising decision because FDA had indicated that they had issues with the inconclusive efficacy results, the data analysis methods, also the higher rates of serious side effects, which include brain swelling and brain bleeds, called ARIAs, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, and also the price. FDA doesn't really care about price, but other people do. And in 2022, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services declared that they will not cover the cost of Aduhelm, except for patients who are in clinical trials. That's important because most patients who have Alzheimer's are covered by Medicare because of their age. And Biogen eventually stopped marketing this drug and then pulled it. So both drugs are not cheap. Edgehelm was $56,000 a year, was later reduced to $28,000, and Relivrio is $158,000 a year. There are fewer patients with ALS in this country than with Alzheimer's, vastly fewer. So the, the budget impact's not the same. But these are both diseases that are progressive, incurable, have devastating effects on patients and their caregivers and their families. So on the one hand, patient advocates demand access to drugs that have even moderate or modest effects on efficacy. But on the other hand, we see that there are other stakeholders like payers who may, with their decisions not to support even approved drugs, basically lead to their demise. So, Koi, the question really is, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier as well, is there a danger that the loudest voices drown out other opinions or lead to decisions that may not be the best? And the question is, for whom? (laughs) This is a... We only ask easy questions, Coy. (laughs) Yeah, this is a great, great discussion. And and I hope you continue to explore it in the podcast because I think you have two incredible case studies there that you can, can pick apart. But something that you said toward the end, you know, about devastating progressive diseases and only modest gains. I think this is an example in both of these cases and in many of the cases that we're dealing with rare diseases, uh, genetic diseases, where even the ability to do a traditional large phase three clinical trial with good control arms and then repeat that with a second confirmatory study it just may not be possible with some of these areas. And, and the decisions that are being made, uh, whether or not to advance compounds based on the feasibility of those kinds of studies, and ultimately whether you can afford to do that kind of research, if you would, would ever uh, be able to you know, see any recoupment of the uh, tremendous expenditures it takes, is balanced by the fact that even a slightly incremental gain is meaningful to some patients and their families. And I think we've had some examples of just 
outrageously amazing therapies coming out that, you know, are nearly 100% effective, that are curing things that used to be incurable, that are, are real game changers, but that's not going to be possible in every disease. And the incremental gains are going to be very important. So where the patient voice comes in, I think is very, very early on and talking with regulators, even early on with payers about the unmet need and what would be meaningful to patients. You know, we like to talk about patient reported outcomes and and things like that. Those conversations can ultimately lead to that. But a lot of times people just aren't looking at the patient experience and what a little bit might mean to folks in terms of approvability. And I think a few years ago in oncology and HIV, we were willing to put up with much more toxic regimens for very tiny incremental gains. But look at where we are now. So I think we have to bring that that history back a little bit and realize, uh, you know, I think we realize in our industry, but not everyone sees that this is a very, very high risk uh, area of research because you're trying not to harm the patient while making them better if you can. But human clinical trials, you know, were the things that your best computer models can't always predict how it's going to work in patients and in different patient groups. So I do think that sometimes the loudest voice in the room does win the day. And sometimes you make decisions that are not based purely on data and on science and for other reasons. And it's a sword that cuts both ways. Sometimes it ends up crushing a glimmer of hope for a patient group. Sometimes it results in something that maybe is barely incrementally better and hard to prove on paper with a p-value, but it's making a difference for a small group of patients and is an important piece of their treatment and frankly, giving them hope. I think what's even more challenging in some of our areas that we're working on, it's difficult sometimes for our scientists and for our regulators and for payers to determine what is good evidence that something is efficacious and safe because there aren't good surrogate markers or or outcomes. And so this is where I'm a little more comfortable maybe as someone with a social work background thinking about things like quality of life and what does it mean to feel 10% less awful than the day before when your 10% less awful might bring a pharma executive or an insurance executive or a U.S. senator to their knees with suffering and pain. But for that patient, feeling 10% less awful is a huge meaningful thing for them with their disease or having three more days of being able to have verbal communication with the people around you versus losing your ability to communicate sooner or, you know, whatever the the negative outcome of, of the disease might be. And amplifying that and figuring out a way to build that into the research and to build that into the ultimate path to payment from the very earliest stage, I think is going to be an area where we have to invest as an industry and bring patients to the table, especially some of the areas that we're investigating of rare disorders these days are so small, but some of those are so incredibly tight knit when you start identifying the families. If there are only a hundred kids with a condition in the US or, or even in the world, chances are those folks all know each other and there's a core group of researchers and you already have a powerful advocacy organization there. They just may not have a catchy name and may not have thought of their own version of the ice bucket challenge yet, but they're there and they're, they're eager to have allies. So when you think back on the early HIV drugs, a lot of them had horrible side effects, but they meant hope, as you said, for somebody to maybe live a little bit longer or have a little bit less pain or side effects from HIV. But are we now much more strict with our standards for safety? Because I think most people could maybe agree that if there's even a little bit of efficacy, and we see that in oncology, as you mentioned, people are willing to consider that. But if there are serious side effects, like with Adjuhelm, there's questionable efficacy questions about the methodology of how these results were presented or gotten to, but then you have these serious side effects. Is it the same value proposition? I think it's even a more fundamental question where we have to call on our biomedical ethicist and other folks to be present in the room because 
you're talking about, as you mentioned earlier, patients who may feel a sense of desperation and be willing to volunteer for a clinical trial, which is a lot different than having a, a product that's you know, approved for uh, commercial use and, and having the dynamic of having an option to discuss with a provider. But even from those early stages of clinical trials, patients may be willing to take more risk on just to have a bit of hope. I think we have to have those tough decisions or tough questions asked early and bring in the right people uh, to think about it. We're, we're truly committed to patient advocacy because that glimmer of hope may be making giving a truly informed consent to moving a product forward a bit more of a cloudiness than it really should have. Yeah, we actually had a podcast episode recently on bioethics. We had Dr. Arthur Kaplan from NYU on. So anybody who's interested in that, please check that episode out. But yeah, certainly need folks like that to guide some of these decisions because they can be quite complex and, and they're fraught with ethical dilemmas often. I'd like to ask you another challenging question if I could. So, you know, Nari was kind of focusing on some of the considerations relating to efficacy and, and safety, let's say, around drug approval. And I want to focus maybe on price and more specifically cost as a barrier to access. I want to frame this up carefully because I'll preface my statement by saying I have nothing but the most respect and admiration for folks that are doing great work in the patient advocacy space, but there may be room for improvement or, or things that we learn along the way. And so when I reflect back, and you might have the same memory as I do, let's say late 80s, early 90s in HIV advocacy, there was a time where there was certainly a, a strong voice that was critical of pharma in the way, let's say AZT and DDI and some other agents from that era these are antiretrovirals used in the treatment of HIV with the, with the goal of suppressing uh, viral replication. The idea was that people thought, given the nature of the crisis, that it was really unethical for, for companies to be charging anything for these medications, that, that something should be done to, to make these medications free for, for everyone. And, and there was a variety of different mechanisms, I think, that people proposed to do that. But you know, Glaxo, Burroughs Welcome at the time, I think, came under criticism for charging anything for this medication. I think the argument was, you're a big company, you have lots of money, make it free. And I understand completely where that comes from, right? You're scared and you're desperate and either you're concerned for your own health or the health of your loved ones. And we can all understand where that comes from. But knowing where we are today, and for those of you that, that maybe aren't as close to HIV as a therapeutic category... The great news is patients live long and, and very healthy lives, usually just taking one tablet once a day and have similar lifespans to individuals who are not HIV positive, which is wonderful news. I could hardly even dreamed of that day back in, in 1990, for example. But if we had listened to the advocates of 1990 and did what they said and removed all profit motive from drug development, none of us know exactly what would have happened, but very likely we could be stuck with those same drugs 30 years later, which were not very effective, which were highly toxic, which did not significantly improve the lifespan of those patients. I don't want to pick on any one group in particular, but that stood out to me as notable in that, frankly, I understand where that's coming from, but that would have cost many, many patients their lives if, if that had been followed as a policy. And the drug development that's occurred over the last 30 years has benefited everybody and significantly the HIV population. So how do we how do we tease out those things that patient advocates are passionate about and that that we think are aligned with not just pharma's goals but but broader public health considerations and those that may be off target and aren't thinking long term in terms of their asks. <laughs> well, great question. So I think as you said it's very complex and you have so many stakeholders, payers, politicians, patients. I, I think one thing that everyone aligns to is that drugs, innovative drugs, life-saving, game-changing drugs need to be accessible to patients. And starting from that premise and, and then understanding where the viewpoints diverge and being transparent about it, looking at, at all of them, where do profits play a motive for pharma innovators and for payers and being transparent? Where do politicians see actual solutions and where do they see political gain in either sustaining the debate or solving the debate? I think all of this has to be very transparent and honest discussion with patient advocacy groups who clearly want one thing, and that's 
to be better, to be healthy, to be well, or to have the people that they're advocating for in their family and their community to live longer, better, healthier lives. It's a shame that has become such a simple mantra that if drugs didn't cost so much, everyone could have them. But to your point, but what drugs would we have if there's not investment in developing new drugs, whether that comes through the system we have in the US, where it's largely through the investment of venture capitalists and investors and being a publicly traded company. Those are one way to fund drugs. There's a lot less innovation coming from things that are purely government funded. But could government play a different role with different priority areas? I'd mentioned AMR, XDR infections earlier, you know, where there's not a lot of commercial incentive and you see companies that were in that space just failing one after another because uh, even if they can get a drug to market, they sometimes just can't sell it because of pricing pressures on a on the antibiotic arena. Maybe there needs to be a different pathway there. For some of the rare genetic diseases, I think that, yeah, they, these are valid questions that you can ask, but I do think we need patients at the table helping to weigh in on what the real solutions would be because the longer we drag this debate out, the more patients are hurt being caught in the middle between, as Nari said earlier, whether a payer's policy over here is the right policy when over here there's a completely different payer policy or even, you know, with some payers within different lines of their own business, they'll treat Medicaid patients differently than their commercial or their Part D patients, for example. I think these are important things to uh, discuss. I also think when pharma sets a price, that price should be set with some patient input along the way. I think that there are appropriate ways through market research and patient advisory boards to gain advice to help inform that decision and, and where patients may be concerned and also how to explain the price. A lot of people, you know, we, I'm sure you could have a year of podcasts just going backwards from when you get that package and how much it cost and why it, the package had to be that way from a regulatory perspective, all the way back up the supply chain and at each point to where the, the, the product is sold and changes hands and changes title. You know, it is just such a complex system that we have. And we'd love to think that it's as simple as, well, drugs are made in a factory and they go to a pharmacy and you just go and get them there. <laughs> and that's just not the case because I think even people have seen now drugs that are priced what may look like relatively low from a list price perspective sometimes commercially fail because there's no incentive to get it from where it's made to where the patient is. And that's why I think we're seeing so many drug shortages out there in, in areas that are pretty critical. What are you hoping for? Maybe when you look at the next five to 10 years, what is one area of patient advocacy that you hope changes or improves and is there one person or one event or one experience that really has influenced your path, your very, very interesting path in this area? Yeah, I hope that we'll see more people whose lived experience is in the areas that we're trying to reach in healthcare and pharma as part of our team, that we see more patients who are brought on to serve as patient advocates internally to be part of the company and to help guide the research, to guide the commercialization of these products. I think we've seen that in certain areas and it's been incredibly successful. But I think that we're just reaching into disease states where diseases are so stigmatized and where patients have been so marginalized or there have been so few that we really haven't had the opportunity to build those kinds of relationships to to say, hey, come be part of our team. I think that some of the transformative medicine that's that's happening now creates space for patients, their caregivers, their friends, their family who are very, very close to this issue to bring that real world expertise into our company so that we look through it truly through a patient-centered lens. And I hope that people like myself who came from an affected community and HIV as a gay man. And that was my passion for getting into the pharma industry and becoming part of the HIV success story. But it opened my mind to how important it is to partner with people from all communities and their friends and allies and caregivers in those communities and create space at the table for them to bring their expertise inside. That's my vision. I hope to be able to 
to step aside and create the space for people like that to come into the, the industry and continue to guide the innovation that's just been so incredible over the past 30 years. Thank you so much, Koi. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it was great to reconnect. Great to see you again. And I understand you have important dinner plans tonight, so we're going to let you run off and take care of those. Enjoy yourself. And we hope to speak again soon. Okay, this was awesome. Thank you. Really great. Yeah, it really was. Well, that was a fun conversation with Koi. I hadn't chatted with him in, in years. Time flies by. And I wish we had a little more time. There's a couple of questions we didn't quite get to. But I think we challenged him in certain ways, and I hope he didn't feel like we were beating up on him too much or beating up on patient advocacy. You know, of course, we have so much respect for the work that's been done, but, you know, it can be an interesting relationship that exists between patient advocacy and pharma. And, and you hope, and the goal is for that to be collaborative, which, you know, certainly Coy was advocating for. I think both sides probably have stories of where it didn't work so well, and there's always room for improvement. And then we have to also be concerned or aware of undue influence. Anytime there's a relationship like that where there's a lot of money at stake, that dynamic can exist. And I know that's one that sometimes industry struggles with. And I think patient advocacy, their side of the table, struggles with it a little bit as well. So I know we didn't go as deep on that to solve all the problems, but hopefully we kind of raised to the surface a few things worth considering as our audience thinks about how to engage with patient advocates and best practices and how to do that. Yes, I, I think... We would not have been able to get through everything we wanted to either way because the topic is just so interesting and there's so many different aspects of it we could have discussed. And I think we tried to discuss as many as we could. But one thing that I liked about what Koi said was to not only focus on patients, but also employees of pharma companies, yeah, basically combining those. I thought that was really interesting. I was thinking about some areas are obvious fits. So we do have patient advocates who join industry and they really represent the patient voice. But I think he was thinking about something much more broad and, and inclusive. And I like that he said, you know, everybody should be a patient advocate. It's everybody's business, whether you are patient facing or you're in the back office. And I thought that was a really nice thought of it's not just the people who are designated to work in patient advocacy, whether that's outside of the company or inside of the company, but we probably all have somebody in our circle who is a patient of some disease we can all play a part in this. I thought that was a, a really great angle. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And we'll continue this conversation. We have a future guest that's going to help us understand this issue a little bit better. She's actually a patient advocate in the oncology space. So, so we look forward to talking with her and hearing from a patient advocate's perspective of what it's like to work with industry. And I'm sure we'll learn a lot from her. So I look forward to that discussion. And thanks again, Ari. Great chat. And uh, look forward to the next episode. Likewise, Ian. Until the next time. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at realpharma.co for more valuable resources. Real Pharma is brought to you by Black Canyon Ventures. Ooh.